Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. By Grabthar's Hammer. <laughs> what a podcast. That was really good. <laughs> there we go. One take. One take and done. Great. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 54, Galaxy Quest. Uh, I am very excited to be talking about Galaxy Quest today for a multitude of reasons, all of which you're going to find out shortly. Um, But first of all, um, I just want to thank you all for joining me for yet another episode. Um, and thank you for uh, the lovely comments that I got for Serenity. Thank you if you listened to Serenity uh, and like I always say, whether this is your first episode or you're a seasoned listener of Verbal Diorama, um, I'm always grateful for you being here and for you listening to me talk about random movies on a podcast. Um, It goes without saying that if you do like this episode or any episode if you would take a moment to rate and review the show on something like apple Podcasts, that would be absolutely wonderful it is literally the best way to show that you love verbal diorama uh it's completely free and it's literally two minutes of your time i would be super super grateful if you would do that um and also i realize i never say this but if you do like this podcast tell your friends uh so that you know they might enjoy listening too that would be wonderful Right, I want to welcome uh, a special guest uh, to Verbal Diorama. I don't have guests on the podcast very often, but when I do, uh, I like to include people of a certain calibre. This particular guest is not only a special guest, he is a returning special guest. So basically, he bribed me uh, an incredible amount of money to come back a second time, uh, and I said, yes, okay. So I would like to say a massive thank you to our returning guest, Andy from Geek Salad. Hi, Andy. Hey, hey, <laughs> give her a big hand. She's British. How you doing? How long have you been waiting to say that? Have you just been sitting there just waiting? Since you said, 
Hello, and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 54. Well, so. I mean, uh, regular listeners of the podcast will remember Andy from episode 23 when he came on for Mystery Men, um, and that was a super fun episode. We had a great time talking about Mystery Men, and so... I believe it was actually in that episode uh, we said that you would come back for Galaxy Quest. And fast forward yeah, th- nine or we, so um, months, and here you are, back for Galaxy Quest. I Yeah, I am thrilled about this. Yeah, it was like, the, it's, this is like the first time that I think I've ever, like, committed just on record that I will do another show. And, uh, now, am I, am I, am I your first yes. returning guest, or... I, I just, you know. Yes, oh, yes. You, yay, are, you are the first person who's had two uh, guest slots on Verbal Diorama. So, I mean, you're, you're yes. either, you know, incredibly lucky or incredibly unfortunate. Uh, I mean, I'm not quite sure which one that is yet, but we'll, <laughs> sure, we'll figure that out uh, at some point. Well, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure we will. I mean, and you are our first podcast guest on my well, podcast, Well, of course, because Geek as Salad. we're recording this... Um, the episode that I did with your podcast on the movies of 1990 came out this this week, the the week that we're recording. So it it it's, it seems yeah. a little bit incestuous, but it's not. <laughs> it's just I've been begging to go on your podcast for a long time. Uh, you finally acquiesced to my request, and uh, and then it just kind of made sense for me to go on your podcast uh, where there was obviously six of us <laughs> on one show uh, which was crazy but you know crazy good fun and then yeah it kind of just made sense to uh, align the stars so to speak and uh, to get you back on for Galaxy Quest and I'm really excited too and I, I'm sensing a trend also and I don't know if you were going to save this for later but both shows that I've appeared for well, were both released in um, 1999 I mean 1999 was a very very good year it's it's i think it's seen as one of the greatest kind of years of modern cinema so i think it kind of makes sense that they are both movies from 1999 uh so and i think i said to you didn't i that when your podcast gets to your movies of 1999 i want to be on it (laughs) so but i think that's that's probably a while away God willing, I'm alive in nine years. So 2020 hasn't tried to take me down yet. So, so yeah, I think I think it's just it's just a very lovely coincidence that both Mystery Men and Galaxy Quest, both comedies, uh, both genre comedies, both not as kind of commercially well. Mystery Men a bit more of a, a commercial failure than Galaxy Quest, but even then, Galaxy Quest was never a massive huge success so uh yeah it's, it's quite interesting that uh that we've kind of aligned the two but i think i think there is a lot of similarities between the two but i think galaxy quest is a bit more pure uh in its intentions um and that's something that i really want to kind of talk about with you because we obviously both love galaxy quest um and that's kind of why we're here so uh so yeah i think without further ado um let's Talk about Galaxy Quest. Well, let's listen to the trailer for Galaxy Quest. Now, where the hell is he? An hour and a half late. They're going to start eating each other out there. Your commander is on deck. For years. Never give up. 
never surrender. The cast of Galaxy Quest have played the same parts. Never give up. By Grabthar's hammer, by the sons of Warband, I shall avenge you. I will say that stupid line one more time. Their careers were bravely going by Grabthar's hammer. Nowhere. What a savings. Until their biggest fans. I must say that standing here in your presence is the greatest honor we could ever have hoped to achieve. Requested a command performance. Hey, where's my limo? We have studied every facet of your missions and strategies. We are actors, not astronauts. You will save us. That was a hell of a thing. This Christmas. Laredo, take us out. You gotta move to the right. Would you sit your ass down? You wanna drive this to... They're not just acting like heroes. The whole thing was just a misunderstanding. They must become heroes. They look like little children. Hi, little guy. DreamWorks Pictures presents Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Galaxy Quest. You're just gonna have to kill it. We'll go for the mouth to throw his vulnerable spots. It's a rocket that not any vulnerable spots. The sci-fi adventure series Galaxy Quest took place aboard the intergalactic spaceship NSEA Protector. 18 years after their series was cancelled, actors Jason Nesmith, Gwen DeMarco, Alexander Dane, Tommy Webber and Fred Kwan, along with Guy Fliegman, who's crewman number six, uh, are making appearances in costume and character at sci-fi conventions and electronic store openings. The cast members are wallowing in despair and at each other's throats until aliens known as Thermians arrive and having mistaken the series for reality and consequently modelling their entire culture around this, take them into outer space to save the Thermians from the genocidal warlord General Saris. We'll quickly go through the cast, but but I think I think it, we can talk about specific characters and the characters that the characters are playing um, a bit later. But um, but in this uh, in this movie, there is uh, a, an absolutely wonderful cast. It's probably one of the most well cast comedies ever ever in existence. You have Tim Allen as Jason Nesmith, Sigourney Weaver as Gwen DeMarco, Alan Rickman as Alexander Dane, Tony Shalhoub as Fred Kwan, Sam Rockwell as Guy Fliegman, Daryl Mitchell as Tommy Webber, Enrico Colantoni as Mathazar, Robin Sachs as Saris, named after the critic Andrew Saris as well, Patrick Breen as Quellick, Missy Pyle as Laliari, and Justin Long as Brandon. The screenplay was by David Howard and Robert Gordon. The story was by David Howard and it was directed by Dean Parisot. We can go into uh, a bit of a brief production history, uh, if you like. Yeah, Absolutely. okay. Yes, so, please. Um, so Galaxy Quest, in his book, Bambi vs. Godzilla, David Mamet included Galaxy Quest on a list of four perfect films. So the other three perfect films on his list were The Godfather... Dodsworth and a place in the sun and then the fourth entry in that was Galaxy Quest hmm. so when we're talking about Galaxy Quest and we are basically gonna heap a 
hell of a lot of praise on this movie throughout this podcast. We've, there's nothing bad to say about Galaxy Quest ever in a million years. So it started out as a script called Captain Starshine. It was optioned by DreamWorks. And I want to try and keep this production history quite brief because I know this episode's going to be really, really long. But essentially, the first person who was involved in this production was Harold Ramis. And Harold Ramis was optioned to direct Galaxy Quest for DreamWorks. And Stan Winston's studio and ILM were also involved. And it was basically going to be an R-rated comedy. And that was basically what they wanted. And obviously Harold Ramis uh, is probably one of the most well-known comedy directors of sort of the 80s. You know, and actors as well. Obviously Ghostbusters. Harold Ramis directed Caddyshack. He uh, wrote Ghostbusters. He directed Groundhog's Day. Groundhog Day, that was it. That was what I was thinking of. Um, And uh, Bedazzled as well with uh, Verbal Diorama favourite Brendan Fraser. Harold Ramis uh, was involved at the start and he really, really wanted Kevin Kline for the role of Jason Nesmith. Um, Kevin Kline didn't want it. Um, So they basically... Would you say that he declined... Yes, he de- Kevin Klein declined uh, Jason Nesmith. You know how close you came to a Thermian laugh right now? Uh, <laughs> oh, I got to. Uh, uh. <laughs> Don't make me laugh, because otherwise this, this episode is literally just going to be me bursting into laughter. Oh, but then, but then I suppose this is Galaxy Quest, and that is something that Galaxy Quest does really well. But um, but your job is to it's not make thing. me laugh. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought I was the funny one. Well, yeah, you are. So. You're you're the uh, you're the plucky comedy relief, uh, like they say to uh, to poor guy. Actually, no, he's not. He's not poor. Uh, he doesn't die, uh, unlike in episode eighty one. But um, but yeah, you're you're the plucky comic relief of, <laughs> of this establishment. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm the one who talks to the computer and uh, recites stuff back. <laughs> they considered uh, Bruce Willis, uh, Tim Robbins, Mel Gibson. I cannot even fathom Mel Gibson at all. I truly do not think that he would get the joke. No. There was, I think that there are certain actors that just do not have that level of self-awareness, not only about themselves, but about the industry on the whole. And Mel Gibson's one of those guys. Uh, yeah. I just do not think that he would get no. this. Same with Bruce Willis as well. He seems a bit too straight-laced. Uh, like, he'd, yeah. I think he'd play it too straight. Uh, Tim Robbins, maybe. Alec Baldwin, maybe. But I think nowadays Alec Baldwin is more well-known for his comedy than 1990, like, late 90s Alec Baldwin was. The thing with Harold Ramis was he wanted to hire an action star who could do comedy. And that's why he went for the Bruce Willis's and the Mel Gibson's, because he wanted to have an action star in the role. Whereas the general consensus was, well, wouldn't it be better to have a comedy star who could do action? And that's when the likes of Robin Williams and Steve Martin and Bill Murray were all involved. Um, And... I could kind of see all of them, really, in part, but I kind of feel like they might take the comedy a bit too far. So I think it's, you know, you've got, like, the likes of Mel Gibson, who just would not get the nuance, 
and the likes of someone like Robin Williams, who would get the comedy, but might take it a bit further than necessary, maybe. Not that not that I am yeah. not that I am poo pooing on Robin Williams in any way, shape, or form because I I love that man uh, <laughs> so completely. Um, but anyway, they all declined. Um, and Tim Allen, who at the time was a big TV star because he had a show called Home Improvement. Uh, I talked about Tim Allen a little bit on the episode that I did on Toy Story. Uh, but at the time, he was obviously known for his comedy movies like The Santa Claus. He was a TV actor who had a couple of hits. Uh, but he wasn't really uh, a, a big star or anything like that. Um, and Tim Allen met with Harold Ramis. And Harold Ramis just was not keen. Not that he didn't like him, but just didn't think he was right for the part. Because he wanted to have an action star. And he didn't think that Tim Allen had it in him to do action. But obviously Tim Allen was known as a comedian. Uh, and he'd kind of, you know, risen through the ranks of, of comedy actor. And interestingly, uh, the episode that I, I didn't mention on the episode that I did on The Nice Guys. But in The Nice Guys, there is a billboard for Tim Allen in that movie. Because Tim Allen was doing comedy circuits at the time. And obviously that movie was set in the late 70s. So there was there was a point where it wasn't actually certain whether Galaxy Quest was going to be going ahead. Um, and all of the other cast was kind of coming into shape. So the likes of Sigourney Weaver. At first, they didn't want her. They didn't want anyone who had sci-fi credentials. So Sigourney Weaver, obviously very well known for her sci-fi credentials. Uh, starring in Alien and Aliens uh, and being this very kind of strong female protagonist um, and for the role of Tawny Madison uh, in Galaxy Quest they obviously wanted to have this blonde hair kind of uh, buxom uh, babe who <laughs> would literally just the only task she had was to recite what the computer told her uh, and they you know kind of felt well this is maybe a bit beneath Sigourney Weaver because Sigourney Weaver is a is a serious actress like she's got serious jobs but we obviously know that Sigourney Weaver is is great with comedy as well and Sigourney Weaver actually kind of really had to fight for the role of Gwen DeMarco because she was like look the people who know sci-fi best are the people who are in sci-fi I think the whole cast of this movie is is tremendous like like I say one of the best casts of any comedy movie ever, but I think getting someone like Sigourney Weaver and and we'll we'll talk about Alan Rickman a lot, um, but getting them involved, uh, I think was just an absolute stroke of genius. Harold <laughs> Ramis then left the production, um, and at that time, the Galaxy Quest production was going on about the same time as Gladiator, and because of issues going on on the set of Gladiator, obviously Gladiator was a huge production. It basically meant that the studio weren't really paying much attention to Galaxy Quest. So Galaxy Quest could kind of muddle along and they kind of didn't really care. Galaxy Quest was kind of left to its own devices. And in many ways, that's probably why Galaxy Quest is as good as it is, because there was very little studio interference. Obviously, Dean Pariso came on board as a director. Things that Galaxy Quest does really well, obviously comedy and the talking of like fan culture and the celebration of fan culture and we can talk about that a bit later as well um but <laughs> i'm not doing very well with <laughs> with this pre-production history because i kind of really just want to get through it as i mentioned earlier it was supposed to be r-rated 
Uh, and they made a decision to turn it PG. Uh, and there's quite a, a famous line in the movie. And I don't swear on this podcast because I like to keep it uh, family friendly. But let's just say there is a scene with an F-bomb, which is a very, very clear F-bomb, um, that is overdubbed with the word screw. And they kept Gwen DeMarco's mouthing of the F-bomb in the movie. Uh, and every single time I see it, it's absolutely perfect. It just summarises everything that's brilliant about Galaxy Quest in that one scene. It is exactly what you would say. Um, it's one of these very few times, I think, that a comedy movie can actually get away with not including profanity. Because I think this movie, obviously aimed at a more family market, works better than this movie if it were the R-rated version of the movie. I'm sure, I'm, I, I don't know if the R-rated version exists anywhere in the world. I would love to see it. But I think the way it is, I think, is, is, is pretty perfect. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's the most important part about this, the fact that it is a, a tribute to Star Trek in a way that I don't think most movies can pay proper respect and make fun of at the same time. Yeah, it does kind of walk that very, very fine line. But I think it's done with so much love and affection right, for Star Trek. Right. This isn't a mean-spirited no. movie by, by any means. And that's that, I think, is why it's so endearing. Because it's not... It doesn't take the Star Trek tropes that we're used to. Um, Tim Allen, who quite honestly is so perfectly cast in this because if there was any actor from the 90s that was going to hit that Shatner slide, it would totally be him. Um, he he doesn't do the voice. He doesn't do the, I'm going to talk fast. And then, pause. <laughs> he He's not, he doesn't do that. And while you can tell that he is very much a, um, a stand-in for Shatner... It's because they do the other things too, like his really kind of lousy fighting. And you, you had mentioned this about how they wanted an action star. And I don't believe Shatner actually had much more than maybe just a little bit of stage combat under his belt. So he's doing like these little shoulder rolls for no reason. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and he's just, just not in the greatest of shape, kind of like dad bod shape while he's fighting things. And just these bad, these bad looking punches, but it, it works. It really works because there's a subtlety to making fun of Star Trek that most people don't get. And I think that the creative team that made this movie and the actors involved really did a good job with that. They did a, they did a fantastic job with just, here's where the joke is. Let's not stretch it out. Let's not belabor the point at all. And that's why this works and other things like uh like uh jason and alexander's rivalry that is a very very real rivalry that shatner and nimoy had on the set of star trek because nimoy was the better actor and he was always in the background hmm. well of course it's i think it's quite famously known as well that um tim allen and alan rickman didn't actually get on either so the the conflict there that you see on screen between Jason Nesmith and Alexander Dane is very much what was happening. Like it wasn't like uh, you know they hated each other. I think that uh, Alan Rickman kind of 
really didn't see what the big deal was with Tim Allen. As obviously the production progressed, I think that kind of animosity maybe went a little bit. Um, and I recently watched the Galaxy Quest documentary, um, which if you are a fan of this movie, I highly recommend watching the, I think it was Screen Junkies. It's a Screen Junkies production. Uh, and they basically interview oh. all of the major cast with the one exception um, of Alan Rickman, who sadly is no longer with us. But they obviously talk a lot about the production and it's it's a genuinely fascinating documentary. I, I absolutely adored listening to them talk about how fond they are of this movie. And I think with a lot of uh, actors, sometimes I, I feel like, you know, if something's having an anniversary, a 10th anniversary, a 20th anniversary, a 30th anniversary, they'll go back to the original actors and they'll say, you know, oh, how, how what was it like working with so-and-so? And, and, and they'll be polite and they'll say, oh yeah, we had a great time. You know, it was a wonderful working environment, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel with Galaxy Quest, it was a genuinely great time and they did have a genuine rapport with each other and they they love the property they love the characters they love the fans because it's it's almost like life imitating art no it's like well it's like life imitating art imitating art because the fans of star trek and the fans of of galaxy quest um you know they they're their own kind of separate entities but they're also kind of the same people as well because people are still fans of galaxy quest i wanted to ask you actually andy uh what yeah. what your history was with star trek uh you know were you a fan of all of the different star treks what star trek do you like the most so to speak okay so i am firmly in the camp of the movies um i i grew up with the tv show it was something that I would watch if it was I, – I, I've told this story before that really the only time I ever watched Star Trek was when I would stay at my grandmother's house. And she would you – know, she would go – she would watch her soap operas and then she would – and then she would go lay down and take a nap. And then that's – right afterwards would be Star Trek. And we, and we stayed over there quite a bit. So I would watch Star Trek without really totally getting it. And it was right – right around the time before Star Wars had come out because there are like th that memory um certain other childhood memories are almost like shadows because once Star Wars came out that was it I was invested and that is my thing I am a Star Wars guy through and through however I have a I have a very distinct fondness for the Star Trek movies um Wrath of Khan is one of my absolute favorites I'm one of the people that actually loves the J.J. Abrams oh, Star Treks, yeah. which, by the by the way, have a lot of Galaxy Quest DNA in them. In fact, um, Abrams was very, very, uh, very inspired to take some of that jokiness of Galaxy Quest and incorporate that into his Star Trek, and it yeah. shows. It absolutely shows. Not 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 as much as you know when you're doing this type of Hollywood meta humor. But just throwing in the things that people will notice and point and laugh and go, oh, that guy's wearing a red shirt. He's going to die horribly in five minutes. Um, but yeah, and then like stuff like The Next Generation and all the other stuff, I just I, – I enjoy it. I can appreciate the fandom for it. But personally, it just it's really just the movies I, I'm into. Mm. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm kind of very similar kind of camp to you, really. Um, I, I do remember watching the original Star Trek TV show because it was kind of one of those things that was on a Saturday or Sunday morning. Uh, they would show the original Star Trek. And then I started watching The Next Generation, but I was never a massive fan. But if it was on, I would quite happily sit and watch. I never really got into any of the other uh, TV shows. But then the J.J. Abrams movie, I was really invested in. We actually did, about a year ago, we actually had done a, a ranking countdown of all of the theatrically released Star Trek movies. And we just as kind of a joke, we threw Galaxy Quest in there, and I think it placed number six. Oh. And that's out of, like, 14 films. So just as kind of a jo- I thought it would just be funny, you know, because it's, it's a better Star Trek movie than most Star Trek yeah. movies are. Well, that's, it's interesting you say but that, as... though, because uh, in a, there was a Star Trek con in 2013, and and they were, basically, the, the people who went to that con were told, you know, oh, rank your Star Trek films. And because it was 2013, there were only 13 of them at the time, because the Star Trek Beyond movie hadn't come out yet. But they included Galaxy Quest as a canonical Star Trek movie, and they ranked it as number seven. So yeah. it's interesting that you say that you ranked it number six out of... 14 and they ranked it number seven out of 13 so i i, I yeah, assume your number it, I one mean, was wrath of khan then um yes our our number one was wrath of khan but it was it was kind of close between that and uh star trek for the voyage home and it's one of these it's one of these things i really don't want to get too off topic on this about you know star trek because we're talking about galaxy quest but i feel if you if you need if you need to indoctrinate yourself into these movies you do need to start with the first movie, the motion picture, um, mainly because it is so long and so silly and just so bright. And there's just there there were thousand and one things wrong with the movie, but it's still kind of just like you have a soft spot for it type of type of thing. And then the tone completely shifts by the time you get to two, but when you get to the Wrath of Khan. Uh, all of a sudden, now you've got this serious movie that actually feels like a real motion picture. Um, and as I am kind of plotting out for my, my 12-year-old daughter what movies I'm going to show her, she's already seen Galaxy Quest. She watched it with me last week in preparation for this. And I'm not gonna I'm not going to do the show with her. She wants to watch the show. She can watch it kind of on her own time. But with the movies, it's going to be the first one, the second one, the fourth one, and then we'll just go from there. We'll see what she likes and what she doesn't like. But I would highly recommend at least the first four movies outside of the Abrams stuff. The Abrams stuff is all gold. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think it's all gold, but... <laughs> uh, oh, oh, no, don't... I absolutely... My my best friend, or you know, one of my best friends, Jim, who uh, you met on our show, actually said that Into Darkness is the best movie he had seen since uh scorsese the departed really okay (laughs) i mean i i kind of rate the first jj abrams star trek i haven't seen into darkness or beyond for a while i to be fair i know this might sound a bit iffy but i can't actually remember the plot of star trek beyond um it wasn't the the most memorable movie for me uh maybe that was because it kind of came out in 2016 and that was 
you know, there were some good movies that came out in 2016. So, um, it's also the most TV episodic out of all three of the movies. The other two are very, very cinematic. Beyond is a very good movie in its own right. But on, and this kind of falls in, too, with some of the other Star Trek movies, like Five, um, Six, all of the Next Generation movies. They all kind of feel just like extended television episodes. Mm. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, the 2009 Star Trek is just... It still just makes me happy it exists. When I hear the Giacchino uh, theme, I get excited. The 2009 Star Trek movie, I think, it had no right to be as good as it was. It's one of those that, you know, right. when, when they said they were going to be rebooting Star Trek, everyone was like, well, it's going to be terrible. And then they announced the cast and it was like, well, it's a really good cast, but it's going to be terrible. And then it was actually good, you know? And it, it was one of those things that... It had no right to be as good. And I feel like Galaxy Quest is very much in that vein, in that it has oh, no right to be as absolutely good as it is. Absolutely, with Galaxy Quest. Um, I don't think it's important if anyone who watches Galaxy Quest has deep knowledge of Star Trek. The thing with Star Trek is it's so ingrained in, in pop culture that it's very difficult not to have seen something Star Trek um, in, in your life. Right. But I'd argue that you don't have to have been able to sit and you know watch star trek in its entirety or even watch episodes of star trek or movies of star trek in order to enjoy galaxy quest because it is very self-contained in its own kind of entity but like you said earlier it is kind of picking and choosing little bits to affectionately parody you know because nothing in galaxy quest is is ever done um to mock or to make fun it's very very loving and affectionate um, and, and certainly yeah. if it was mocking Star Trek or the fans of Star Trek, then it would definitely not be as fondly remembered. Uh, it definitely wouldn't have done as well uh, at the box office because the whole point of Galaxy Quest is the fans. It's, it's about celebrating the fans um, and it's about celebrating fan culture at a time when you didn't celebrate fan culture. Right, and I and I can point to her too as as being the prime example of the person that doesn't need to understand Star Trek to get Galaxy Quest because she thoroughly loved Galaxy Quest, and I think the only real reference point she'd ever had to Star Trek was a little aside joke on an episode of Teen Titans Go. So she's <laughs> she definitely got the jokes. She had a great time with it. Yeah. Oh well. Ideal then. Now, certainly, being uh, a self-confessed geek is—it's a good thing. Like people embrace it. People, people embrace geek culture and Comic Con and stuff like that. But back in the nineties, you—you didn't. You know, it was reserved for the purest of pure geeks, and that was it. And I think that's what I love so much about Galaxy Quest is it, it's a reminder that this is for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It's about the love and the passion that you have for whatever you have love and passion for. And the fact that essentially the, the heroes of this story are the young fans will forever kind of sit with me as that could have been me. You know, I was that geek. Yeah. That could have been me who saved the day. And and that is one of the reasons why I think this movie is so terrific. Is it 
puts the fans front and center. It doesn't ridicule them. It highlights them and it highlights the fact that they've got detailed maps of schematics of the ship and they know where everything is because we all know that if we love a, a show or a movie or whatever if you're a proper fan you will know the ins and outs the bits of trivia i mean we're sitting on a movie podcast where that is essentially what we love to do we love to talk about movies we love to talk about the intricate details of what makes movies so brilliant. You know, those little bits of trivia, those little factoids. That is essentially who we are. That is the root of movie podcasting in its entirety is that young geek who has the schematics for the NSAA protector. (laughs) Isn't it, though? I mean, it is. Now, if you really want to get down to it, too, aren't the Thermians just like the ultimate fans? I mean, they built an entire spaceship and they built every little thing that that show had to offer. They made it reality because of their love of the historical documents. Yeah. Yeah, they, they are kind of the ultimate fans. I feel like maybe we've, we've, we haven't gone off on a tangent because I feel like everything that we're talking about is super important. But maybe we need to start with the characters i agree i was just thinking about that i really want to i really want to get into some of these characters too especially you know we're gonna essentially have to dedicate a very large portion of this to alexander dane but i do want to take a moment to talk about uh fred kwan okay go for it played by played by lebanese actor um tony shaloub it it, the, the thing with his character is there's always something new Every time I watch this movie, and I didn't... When I first saw this, I saw this movie, and I'll never forget the date. It was January 1st, 2000, when I went to go see this movie. It was the very first movie I saw in the new millennium. And it was just like, okay, Tony Shalhoub, the guy from uh, Wings is on, and he's, he's kind of funny. And as I bought the DVD, and as I kept watching it, I noticed the little subtleties. Like, every time they called him, uh, you know, Te- Tech Sergeant Chen... He would, he would narrow his eyes because he was supposed to be that prototypical um, white or European actor who was supposed to be playing somebody of an Asian descent. And then I started noticing he's always snacking. Yeah. And I'm wondering why he is snacking, why he's so aloof. And then last week it finally showed up. It's just like I've seen the movie enough now that my, my line filter – is just like, okay, I've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this. Guy actually asks him closer to the end of the movie, are you stoned? I had never heard that in 20 years of seeing this movie. And I'm like, I've always thought that. Thank you for finally confirming that. Tony Shalhoub is a genuine, brilliant revelation in this movie because if you look at the script for his character, Tech Sergeant Chen uh, specifically, but also Fred Kwan as well. Um, The script actually doesn't give him that much to do. You know, his lines are very nondescript. With Tony Shalhoub, it's all in the delivery. Everything is in his, the way that he enunciates his words, the looks that he's giving on screen. He gives such a well kind of rounded performance in this movie with literally having the bare minimum of words. And also there's that cut 
when he sees oh is, it, is her name Lilari? Oh. He see, he he's he's gonna try to beam Jason back, and he gives up, and he sees Lilari, and he just turns around and just the way he just zips up his jumpsuit to get that done is honestly some of the best reactionary acting I've, I see in this movie. Yeah. He's he's actually really great, and I think as well because he's just supposed to be the Scotty. He's not really paramount to anything that's really happening uh, on screen because we're so focused on the three main cast members. So Jason Nesmith, Gwen DeMarco, Alexander Dane. They are very much the focal point of everything that's going on. So Fred Kwan in the background, he is very much a background character, but it's those little nuances that really just make what the very little that he's given to do just really pop and really make you so endeared to him as a character. And there's a lot of little little tiny bits of very nuanced physicality, as you mentioned, like the, the constant snacking. <laughs> and, and just the kind of deadpan in the background, you know, everything's blowing up. Um, the beryllium sphere is completely busted and he's just like, yeah... Uh, everything's uh, not going so great back here and uh, we're probably all going to die. And it's just, it's just a like, wonderful yeah. kind of deadpan delivery. But it's just so well done. And, and I kind of feel like, again, this is kind of going back to perfect casting. I don't think anyone could really bring that kind of very nuanced performance that Tony Shalhoub brings. It is, and, and if you think about the entire cast, it's very, it's very difficult to see anybody else in any of these roles without dramatically changing the, the flavor of this film. I feel like, you know, we, we, you know, we mentioned Tony Shalhoub. Daryl Mitchell is, his story is so sad um, because not long after this movie was filmed, he was in a terrible car accident and lost the use of his legs. Really? So he's confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And it, that, that does sadly limit your acting roles. Um, you know, especially if you're dealing with something in the, the 2000s. Now, I saw that, and, you know, go ahead and look, and I could very well be wrong on all of this, but he was he was always a really good actor in the movies that he was in, the TV that he was in. He was uh, really good on the show. I don't know if you, you'd ever watched it in the 90s, called The John Larroquette Show. I don't know of it. And, oh, he, he actually is quite, he, he's, he was quite good in it. But he, um, but he, just this whole thing he brings as being like the, the guy who grew up with this show because he was a kid, played by Corbin Blue. Mm-hmm. By the way, I I am today years old when I found that out. Yeah, the guy from that, um, um, High School Musical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was he was he was young Tommy, and to have he just the way he does everything, and it's not over the top. Even when he's kind of freaking out over everybody backseat driving with him as he's just trying to pull out of the space dock. <laughs> Which is one of the best scenes. And you can tell his nerves and you can just see just the look on his face. And there's this moment when he's just trying to get them through and he just... Because I do this when I drive sometimes and I'm having a difficult time with where I'm driving to. Where I just kind of like have that thousand yard stare... And I just purse my lips the same way he does. And it's just, it was, it's so much fun to watch because this character not only could be played, it could honestly be played as a stereotype 
for lack of a better term, and I really am happy they avoided that and just had him be the child actor who never got that extra break and is now just known as the pilot. Yeah, he's um he's very oh what oh, his name escapes me. What's the name of the actor who was in Star Trek The Next Generation who basically started out as quite a young lad? Will, Will Wheaton, Wheaton, of course. Well, Will Wheaton's got his own, like, nerd empire now, so I, I don't cry no, for Will No, well, Wheaton. I certainly don't cry for Will Wheaton other, uh, either, other, other than the fact I couldn't remember his name. Uh, and that would obviously upset <laughs> him greatly. It seems to kind of be a very kind of affectionate look at a Will Wheaton-esque kind of actor, someone who started out quite young. Um, and I think Will Wheaton yeah. is very much aware of where he's come from, uh, very much aware of the fan culture around Star Trek uh, and seems very kind of uh, grateful and very happy to still be involved. Actually, he was in the Galaxy Quest documentary. I'm sure he was. I really, really, one of the standout scenes for me is the scene when he's kind of pulling the ship out of the bay for the first time. Yes. Um, And, you know, they make a point of saying in the historical documents, you know, they watched you pilot the ship. So they know how you fly. And then it's kind of the this kind of stark realisation of, well, that actually wasn't me. And, okay, now I need to remember how to fly a, a fictional ship. And the look on his face, I think, is just pure brilliance because he kind of slowly kind of edges this thing out and he thinks he's doing really well and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it starts veering. And you see all of the characters kind of lean as, as the ship is veering. Uh, yeah. And it's one of those things that, it happens, you know. You you do kind of have that. When you go bowling, bowling's a great example. It's kind of going in the wrong direction. You're kind of willing it. You go, no, just, just go back that way just a little bit. The fact he scrapes it down the side is... Uh, we've all done that. When we've taken a car out for the first time, everyone <laughs> has kind of had that little scrape. It, it's one of those, I think, classic moments in... Well, in, in any kind of comedy, I think. And, but this, this movie is so full of those classic moments. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Jason Nesmith, if, uh, if, if you'd be so kind as to uh, indulge me. Oh, I'd be, ha- I'd be happy to talk about Jason Nesmith. Now, I just found out also in reading the trivia about this that the whole bathroom scene is based on a real-life event that happened in 1986 with Leonard Nimoy, where he was at a con... And he had to use the bathroom, and he overheard a couple of guys that were there just making fun of just how pathetic it made him to keep reliving this past glory. And this is prior to the very, very famous Saturday Night Live uh, Star Trek convention bit that he did with the Get a Life. That, That scene alone kind of drives Nesmith to kind of just be kind of a better captain not so much a better person that comes much later in the movie um but it's it is it is really interesting that he's he's kind of the worst out of all of them because he's the one that actually got the ancillary fame of it and for a little while he loves it but then he loves the adoration of the thermians and the fact that they just fawn over everything that he does, and everybody else is still trying to get their bearings on the fact that this is all real. But when 
you know, when he finally kind of has to out himself that he's not really a starship captain um, to Malthazar, it's, it is, it's really heartbreaking and quite honestly some of the best non-Buzz Lightyear action, you know, acting that uh, Tim Allen has done. Mm. Yeah, the way that I feel uh, about Jason Nesmith, uh, it's, he is very much set up as the, the kind of guy that you love to hate. You know, because he's got this success, he was a star of this TV show that got cancelled. There are a lot of parallels uh, between Galaxy Quest and the previous episode on Serenity, Uh, In many ways, you know, because Serenity was obviously an ensemble TV show that got cancelled. Serenity uh, is still very, very popular on the con circuit. The cast are still, uh, you know, regularly called upon for, you know, meet and greets and fan events and stuff like that. And that's kind of the reason why I wanted to do them both as a a back-to-back kind of double pairing. Because there are so many similarities between Firefly and Serenity and also, you know, with with Galaxy Quest uh, and the way that they embrace fan culture um, in in many respects. But you can't... I mean, there aren't really any comparable actors because I, I kind of feel like from what I know of, like, Nathan Fillion, for example, Nathan Fillion comes across as a very nice guy in real life. Uh, and... Jason Nesmith is is kind of the the antithesis. Uh, there, can't say that word. Antithesis. I don't. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say antithesis. Anti. The, the opposite. opposite. The opposite. Yeah. Thanks. The uh, the antithesis of uh, of someone like Nathan Fillion. <laughs> um, you know the fact that he he kind of cares in a way that he cares about himself, but he doesn't care about everyone else. You know, they're not his crew. They're not part of his ensemble. They're just people that he used to work with once upon a time. Um, you know, he still treats Gwen uh, like a sex object. Um, you know, there's that line when they're at the con where he basically tries to come on to her and she basically says, it was cute back then, but it's not cute now. They've obviously got this uh, this history of the fact that he he's a jerk. Alexander thinks that he's a jerk because the fact that he doesn't show up for these pre-booked events... And it, he wants the fan adoration, but he doesn't want the responsibility of being that captain. He doesn't want the responsibility of, of being that character. He just wants the adoration. Uh, you know, he wants to feed his own ego um, and, and feed his stomach with booze, uh, essentially. And, 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 and <laughs> one of the things I like so much, I think, about the actors who are playing the actors who are playing the characters is how... The dichotomy between the the actors playing the actors playing the characters. So Jason Nesmith, washed up, drunk, uh, has been, is you know the complete opposite of of Captain Peter Quincy Taggart, who is heroic <laughs> and always talks about you know teamwork and and all of that. And then Gwen DeMarco is very very strong she's the one who is kind of essentially leading the team in his absence uh whereas lieutenant tawny madison is very timid and literally is just there to repeat what the computer says so there's so much kind of interesting material that they're given um but it it kind of adds a lovely little layer 
onto the movie because I feel like if Jason Nesmith was heroic and uh, always talking about teamwork and loving being with these people that he worked with and uh, uh, having respect for everyone, Peter Quincy Taggart, (laughs) then there would be no way to differentiate between those two characters. Um, So I think the movie kind of has to do that, but the way it does it, it shows really wonderful character growth as well uh, from kind of the start to the end. Yeah, no, it it actually, it makes a lot of sense too because they're looking, the crew is looking for a leader. The Thermians are looking for a leader and it is kind of nice that Jason can grow into that role after almost 20 years of just being the star of the show. And, be, you know, really just kind of being that person who is taking the best lines and always ends up with his shirt off at the end. And uh, it is it is really nice that they do come together as a team. I mean, quite honestly, I would have loved to see one of the uh, the continuing adventures of Galaxy Quest episodes. Mm-hmm. We, we can talk about the uh, proposed TV show uh, a little bit later. But, uh, but yeah, there, there, there yeah. obviously was a proposed TV show that would have gone into some detail uh maybe with the continuing adventures of galaxy quest can we talk a little bit about dr lazarus and uh and Alexander yes Day? because i i i, I do yes. <laughs> i do want to talk about alan rickman uh specifically at the end of the episode because i i feel like not an obituary because that that doesn't feel right when you're talking about a comedy movie, it doesn't feel right to kind of have an obituary at the end. But I want to kind of pay tribute right. to him and talk about how wonderful he is because this is a man, Alan Rickman, who has, who has done some incredible roles. Uh, you know, he's played incredible bad guys. He's played incredible ambiguous guys that you're not sure are good or bad. Uh, and he's also played uh, incredible good guys. And Alexander Dane, I think is my favorite role that he's ever done. Um, what, what do you think? <laughs> it's up there. It really is up there. It really is up there because, you know, having having a theatrical background, you, you know people like that. You know those people that got stuck in a role. I have, I actually have a friend who, and he's not to the extent of having that nervous breakdown and mentioning all the other great things he did, but I have a friend who has played John Adams, in, not John Adams, but he's played one of the characters in the musical 1776, Dickinson, multiple times. And it's kind of like if you're doing a, a local production of 1776, let's just call Craig. Craig will come in and he'll do it. And it's that kind of thing. And I, when I talk to Craig about Galaxy Quest, he identifies with Alexander because Alexander is that person who had these amazing highs before the fame hit. And now that is it. And that is what he is known for. And you can... The, the, the beauty of him saying, I'm not going out there, there's nothing you can do or say to make me go out there. And Jason just tells him, the show must go yeah. on. And he's such a consummate actor. There's that bit where he's... Uh, where Jason is you know, fighting Grignac. And... Um, Alexander asked him what the, what his motivation was. He's a rock monster. He doesn't have any motivation, and he just goes off on Jason about never being serious about the craft. <laughs> and it's just these great actor jokes 
that, you know, again, you don't have to be a Star Trek fan to know the actor jokes, um, but they just work. Uh, coupled with this just brilliant delivery that Alan Rickman has in every one of his roles. It's just because I was, you know, he did not want to, he initially didn't want to do this movie because he doesn't like sci-fi, but he found it funny enough to let him do that. Um, You think about some of his other great roles, like the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Totally didn't want to do that one unless they let him rewrite all of his lines. And they did, and he's amazing in that. You feel the frustration in a man who is known for being a classically trained actor. Because they say about five curtain calls. Oh, I, I definitely think he was plucked from the British stage. He, The character of Alexander Dane is very much the quintessential British actor. He did his shows on the West End. He's He did his thing um, with the Royal Shakespearean Company. Yeah, yeah. I can fully understand the frustration of of being so in tune with your craft, being classically trained, being Richard III, you know, having that on, on your CV, or if you're in America, your resume, to have such a, a, a classic list of, of all of these things that you've done. And then to obviously take a role in a TV show, because let's be honest, uh, actors also need to work. Uh, there is there is never any shame, in my view, of, of any actor taking an acting job uh, on any you know TV show. But I think back in the eighties, it work was it was kind work. of seen as well. This is kind of because TV back then wasn't. It's not like Game of Thrones, you know. It's not like people get picked on Game of Thrones and it it kind of improves your credibility to be on a TV show like Game of Thrones. But on a TV show like, uh, filmed in the 80s, like Galaxy Quest, it was probably seen as a bit of a step down. Uh, so for him to have to do that and then for him to have that literally be the only thing that he's known for, it must grate him every day to have to put that hairpiece on, head well, headpiece, beg pardon, and put up the makeup on and say the line and you know and the line that you delivered so perfectly at the start um and and to have to do that every single time you go to a convention because of your association with this one tv show that you you probably liked at the start and now you just absolutely detest in every way alan rickman as an actor who got his acting career started quite late in life he is so dedicated to the craft you know that voice is, I swear to God, not only one of the most memorable voices in cinema, but also, I argue, one of the sexiest voices as well. I absolutely adore Alan Rickman's voice. I think it is so husky and wonderful and really, really sexy. Like, there is there is nothing sexier than an Alan Rickman voice, as far as I'm concerned. Um... Apart from Keanu, obviously, but we'll we'll come to him a bit later. Um, <laughs> but he he just brings this gravitas. He brings this thespian. It feels very much to me, and I know we've we've kind of said that everyone is so perfectly cast. You need somebody who is put upon, not somebody who is putting yes. it upon. Yeah, and I and I and I think you've hit the nail on the head there because I think that is what Alan Rickman does so well. He is so put upon. <laughs> he is so frustrated. He can bring the comedy, but he can also bring the serious... When Quellick is shot 
and you have that wonderful scene where he's cradling a dying Quellock. Quellock is a such a super fanboy, you know, he loves Dr. Lazarus. He's like, I've studied your work. He knows about the traditions uh, of Dr. Lazarus's people. The Maktar chant of strength, I think it's called. Um, yes. And, and all of that. So he's a fanboy. He's a proper fanboy. Um, and the fact that there is no prompting, you know, throughout the movie, Alexander Dane is prompted to say the words. And he's just like, I don't want to say it. And then he's like, oh, yeah, by Grabthar's hammer, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the one time he actually needs to say it, he says it, he says it with conviction. He says it, you know, with humanity. He says it and he means it. You know, you will be avenged. And it's it's so perfect. And I feel like only Anna Rickman could bring that. Yes, absolutely. And there's that one of the one of the best scenes and it's 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 very much a very great acting scene in that is when they're eating and their food synthesizers have, have perfectly duplicated everybody's food and he's got those those cockroaches <laughs> essentially and just the look on his face is just it it tells everything before he even delivers the line. Yeah, it's just like mother used I love to make. It. I love that line. <laughs> Like, the funniest thing about it is the fact that Jason Nesmith is tucking into a steak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Alexander Dane is given the uh the the, the Beatles, the Beatles stew, uh, and it's Yes. It looks disgusting, like it's all wriggly and uh it, it genuinely looks disgusting and he's priceless. He's is there anything else that you wanted to, to add about Alexander Dane? Because I really want to talk about Gwen DeMarco. Um, no, but I do want to just bring up one thing about that scene sure. real quick, just tying back to Fred always eating, is that when they kind of realize that this is real and that they could very well die, they all run out to the hallway and Fred has a container of Chinese food with them. I didn't even notice that. But it, <laughs> but again, this movie is one of those that you can sit and rewatch and rewatch and rewatch and it's always brilliant. It always makes me laugh. Uh, it always makes me sad, you know, at certain points. Um, it makes me proud, you know, it makes me so proud that this movie is as good as it is. Every single time, I'm just like, is this movie going to be terrible now that I've watched it for the 300th time? And after it's finished, it's like, no, it's still great. Like, (laughs) there's nothing, literally nothing to be disappointed about ever in this movie at all. Um, I argue that it's one of those that is perfect. You know, I, I mentioned earlier about, um, David Mamet's four perfect movies. I mean, this this is the mummy levels are perfect as far as I'm concerned, and that is that is the highest <laughs> praise that I could give it. Uh, but I genuinely do think it's it's pretty perfect. Um, yeah. May we move on to Gwen DeMarco? Absolutely. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, obviously, I've mentioned Sigourney Weaver. Uh, she is a phenomenal actress. She is known for her strong female protagonist roles. She is known uh, for her role in Ghostbusters. She is known for her role in Alien and Aliens. She was done completely with Alien by the time this movie came out because um, Alien 3 came out in 92. And and, uh, Alien Resurrection came out in 97. Right, okay. 96, 97, around there. When we talk about Sigourney Weaver, everyone goes to Ellen Ripley. Uh, and that is that is essentially the, the character that she is most well known for. 
Um, and I think that's probably why when they did kind of continually churn out alien movies in the 90s, it was always a case of, well, we need to get Sigourney back because she was essentially the beating heart of those movies. Um, she is so perfect to play Gwen DeMarco because Gwen is similarly frustrated with the fact that she, as a woman, in a sci-fi TV show, which is predominantly aimed at men, pretty much everything that was any kind of science fiction based was primarily aimed at a male market. Gwen DeMarco, we don't know that much about her backstory and where she's come from, but to have that responsibility to be the only woman in the team, which is something that a lot of women, especially women in STEM, for example, uh, I'm the only woman in my team at work, so I can relate to her being the only woman, having that responsibility on her shoulders, but also to literally just be the eye candy. And obviously I am also the eye candy uh, in my department, but so I can relate. But I fully understand her frustration, the fact that she is literally just there to be boobs, blonde hair, beautiful. They even say to her, you know, what is your job? like? And I, and I think that's something that a lot of women do experience. You know, what is it you actually do? And actually, I do the same as every other man, you know, in this establishment. But you, as a woman, you kind of don't get that same recognition. So I really do understand where Gwen is coming from. Because, again, the, the, the disparity between Gwen and Lieutenant Tawny Madison. L Lieutenant Tawny Madison is, is quite happy to just be the bubbly blonde uh, repeat the computer because that is literally all she does but Gwen DeMarco wants more than that she actually wants to be responsible to actually be known for what she's doing um, and that is something that I think a lot of women experience in the workplace in general um, so yeah in a long-winded way uh, I think she's great anyway what do you think <laughs> As a man, as a man think, watching a woman. Yeah, as a man. Huh? <laughs> I feel like her character is... I love that her character isn't a complete ripoff of Lieutenant Uhura from Star Trek. Uh, she's very cog conscious of how... You know, she even says it. It's like, I have one job on this ship. It's a stupid job, but I'm going to do it. And she, she is more the glue that holds everybody together, especially when Jason is not the greatest guy in the world. Um, she is very conscious of the male gaze. She's very, very much aware of that. And I think it's, it's tough because there is so much other stuff that I think needed to get addressed in this movie. There wasn't a whole lot of time for her to do more than just be the one to make sure that Jason was able to understand that he had a bigger responsibility than just being the show captain. Um, and that's why she is the one that, that goes with him through the chompers, that very badly written episode. Uh, <laughs> and what's interesting too is that 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 line that she has at the very beginning about the six the, the six are you know six paragraphs just asking her how she fit her boobs into her jumpsuit is actually taken from a story that Jerry Ryan 
who played Seven of Nine on Star Trek Voyager had, where that was that was the case. They were just just curious. How do you, how do you fit them in there? And so it's it's I can understand she. They definitely do address the sexism of her character now. Had a series come out or a sequel had come out and see where she stood from there, other than just repeating what the computer just said. You know, she also is. I think she does a good job too of just making sure Guy doesn't get killed. Yeah. Because we just need to get out of here before Guy. Before, before they, they kill they Guy. guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't feel like there's anyone who could do this other than Sigourney Weaver. She's she's so perfect because she has that sci-fi background because she knows what sci-fi fans expect and what they want and of course it's Sigourney Weaver so she's super stunningly beautiful uh the one thing I I do really like I don't know if it was intentional or whether this was something that Sigourney Weaver actually requested but I really like the fact that she's not wearing like a super short skirt because I know at one point you know she's she's obviously wearing a very low cut uh v like neck jumpsuit um and at one yeah. point, obviously, that mysteriously gets ripped, and we never actually see it get ripped, but it gets ripped, and it's you know her bra is exposed. Um, and but I'm I'm really glad that they went for like a full full length trouser rather than the very kind of typical short skirts that were were often seen on like female characters. I know Star Trek obviously had short skirts for its. Uh, and they brought that back for the yeah the Abrams movie. They brought the the, the go go skirts yeah. back. Yeah, I think the reason why they did that that they put her in a jumpsuit was primarily because if you look at the actors' heights, she is the tallest out of mm-hmm. all of them. She stands six foot six foot yeah. one, I believe. So it if she was in the skirt, it would just accentuate how leggy she yeah. really is, and it's just it's kind of easier to blend actor heights when you're dealing with short people. I believe Tim Allen is reasonably short. Tony Shalhoub is very short. I wasn't, I'm not sure how tall Alan Rickman was, but everyone was, I mean, she is just, she's one of the tallest successful actresses. Her and Gina Davis are both six feet tall. And so I can, I can understand that was probably like in the costuming, they looked at her and went, Nope, you look too tall. And coincidentally, uh, both two of my absolute favourites, Gina Davis and Sigourney Weaver. I feel like we need to say something about Crewman number six. Because Crewman number six... Oh. uh, Only... What's his last name? Uh, (laughs) What's his last name? (laughs) I'm sure he has one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Crewman number six was in episode 81 of Galaxy Quest. Uh... And obviously he was only there to die. And so we meet Guy uh, at the convention and Guy kind of starts hanging out with the with the crew and kind of becomes unofficial, like an unofficial member uh, until at the end when he does become an official member of the, uh, you know, the story continues cast. Uh, but this is yeah. one of Sam Rockwell's first roles, I believe. Uh, and it, it well yes we and you know what though we did not mention this when we were discussing the movies of 1990 on my own podcast um that Sam Rockwell actually was in the gang of teenagers in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, I yeah, I remember you asking me to remind you, and I didn't. But, <laughs> but um, 
Thank God I reminded Thank myself God then. Thank God you reminded yourself. <laughs> He is such a revelation in this. And you compare it to another movie that came out in the same year that he was in, The Green Mile. And he is just... This is the Sam Rockwell I love. I love this Sam Rockwell. I love the guy Fleegman. I love all Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. <laughs> Sam Rockwell. Because obviously the year after this, he was in Charlie's Angels as well, which uh, obviously I, I did an episode on. That's right. And I think That's he's right. brilliant in Charlie's Angels. And obviously Sam Rockwell is known for dancing. Uh, in you know most of the roles that he does he does a little dance uh sadly he doesn't do a dance in galaxy quest and i I feel like if i was to mark the movie down in any way it would be well you don't have sam rockwell dancing (laughs) so um but that that's me being incredibly pernickety uh because i i I love the fact (laughs) that guy is so out of his depth he wants so desperately to be part of the team so he kind of joins them and then he immediately regrets joining them because he ends up in space. Yeah. And that scene where they arrive on the ship and they, they obviously have the goo and it kind of all drains and they're, you know, all struggling with the after effects and the uh, the Thermians come in and then they haven't got their disguises on. Uh, it's one of the funniest things because they're not only do they not have disguises on, they've got all these tools and they start kind of poking and prodding people and putting uh, like guns in people's ears. And Sam Rockwell's scream in that scene is probably one of the best screams uh, ever put to cinema because it's just it's so pure and so petrifying. <laughs> he is literally like and totally improvised. Yeah, and it it would be like it makes complete sense that it was improvised. Um, I think Sam Rockwell yeah. is really great. Uh, and obviously, Sam Rockwell would go on um, to make a movie called Moon, which is one of my absolute favourites. Uh, I am going to be talking about Moon at some point, uh, probably next year on the podcast, because I, I desperately want to talk about Moon. Give me advance notice. I still haven't seen oh, it yet, so you got to give me lots of notice so I can... Keep keep talking yeah, about you, them. You need to watch Moon. I will remind you to watch Moon because um, I Please. I think I think you would really enjoy it because it, it is genuinely brilliant. It's uh, Sam Rockwell. Yeah. It's basically him on his own, and he carries the whole movie. So uh, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty special that one. Um, but Great. yeah, Guy Guy Fleegman as uh, as he's credited at the end is uh, is literally a complete fish out of water. And he so desperately wants to be part of this. He wants to be part of the culture. Um, and he wants to be part of the crew. And it's it's quite nice, really, because it is very much a baptism of fire for him. He's kind of launched into this yeah. situation that turns out to be real. And he actually learns to be a crew member. And he learns not to die as well. But as you said, they, they do make every effort to not let Guy die, um, which which is quite nice because there are quite a few occasions where Guy could have died. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it, it, luckily for him, it doesn't happen. Is there anything that you wanted to add about Guy? Not, not particularly, not particularly. It was nice to kind of be introduced to Sam Rockwell at, at this point in his career. He's, he is such a fun character and I'm glad that they didn't overdo him. And I'm also glad, too, that he didn't, like, he wasn't, like, the sacrificial character. Like, he died for the greater good, which is a trope that could, they could have easily leaned on. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am also glad that they didn't kill him off because I feel like that would have added yeah. a, a very somber. I mean, we we do have somber moments in the movie. You know, there's you've, we've mentioned earlier the scene where Mathazar is captured and Saris forces um, Jason to tell him the truth about the historical documents, and I think. I mean, I think it would be a good idea to, to talk about uh, Mathazar, to talk about Enrico Colantoni, who literally made up everything to do with the Thermians, the the walk, where they're kind of walking like a puppet, the clapping, uh, the laugh, everything was made up by him. So he basically made up an entire race of aliens. Uh, the, you know, the way they talk, <laughs> the way that they talk, you know, all of that was all made up by him. So yeah. I, I think he is a genuine revelation uh, in this movie. And I, and I didn't know anything else that he'd been in because I think he was in uh, some TV shows, I believe. He was on the show uh, Just Shoot Me as a photographer. And he's like one of those guys that has always looked to be about 50 years old, um, even when he was in his 30s. Uh, and then, you know, I'm sure you would remember him more as being the dad on Veronica Mars. Uh, yeah, I've I've never seen Veronica Mars. Really? really? I've tried so desperately to see it. I am it. shocked. I am Me honestly too. shocked to hear you no, say that. I, I, pro- <laughs> I never actually watched it either, but it's not my it's not my brand of vodka. I promise. But I promise the- I have tried. I've in a, in the sense that I've checked every single streaming service. It's it's never available here. The only option I have is to buy it on DVD, and I just haven't got around to buying it yet. So, screw that. <laughs> um, well, screw that. You see what I did there? I the, the thing with his character is too, and it, what's interesting about him um, as Malthazar's Malthazar's the, the drag in his voice when he is trying to talk. It's like everybody else kind of got the English language through their translators and his is just permanently slowed mm-hmm. down but it works for him and it makes him stand out more um it makes him more sympathetic a lot of the well, other I think yeah you know. I, I think so too especially because he can that voice sounds so yeah. sad even when he's happy he sounds kind of sad <laughs> um yeah. and it really works especially oh god it breaks my heart every time that you know Saris forces Jason to tell him that they're actors and it was all yeah. fake. And it's, it's especially cruel when Saris says, you know, tell him as if you would a child, you know, explain it. And yeah. the only way you can explain it is we are pretending like this is a lie. It's deception. Yeah. And the only thing that the Thermians know about lies and deception is from Saris, who says, I'll give you mercy, right. but then slaughters them. And and that is all that they know. And it it does add this... It's a comedy. You know, this is a comedy movie and it, and it relies very strongly on, on comedy. But it also has this very kind of deep and meaningful heart to it as well. And it's kind of based around the Thermians who essentially are... They are like children. Um, you know, they believe yeah. everything that they see. But believing is so important you know, sometimes you have to believe. Sometimes it's the right thing to do to believe and to believe in the people around you and for them to believe in the crew that the, that, that they will help them. They have this kind of childlike belief. But it's kind of led by Mathazar, who, as you said, you know, he, he is 
a more of a sympathetic character because of the way that he speaks and because of his mannerisms you know he's polite and but he's polite to a fault in a way because he almost can't stress the urgency when they do get Jason when they take him in the limo and they bring him up to the ship they it's almost like they can't express the urgency of the situation to him enough because of the way that they speak and because of the way that that they're kind of overtly polite and friendly nature these are the characters that we empathize with the most and if they'd made the Thermians any less like childlike or any less empathetic, then the movie wouldn't work because we wouldn't care about the Thermians. But we do care about the Thermians. Like the Thermians and their, the fact that they're being slaughtered and tortured is, it's, it's heavy stuff. And the movie gets away with it because of yeah. the performances of the the Thermians and and the way that they interact with people. No, I agree. I I completely agree. Oh well, thank you. That that is why you're here. That is uh, that is why I invited you on because I, I, I knew you would agree with me. <laughs> I bow to your majestic expertise. <laughs> well, you don't have to do that. We won't talk about Saris because we don't need to. We've, he's the bad guy, and we've already talked yeah. about Quellick because <laughs> we talked about Quellick with. Um, Alan Rickman. We can mention Laliari. Laliari, yeah. Um, Missy, Pyle, Missy Pyle, who has such a recognisable face. I've seen Missy Pyle in so many things. I couldn't name anything off the top of my head, but she's got such a memorable face that I just know who she is instantly. But I think she's a really great character actor. Like, I've seen her pop up in so many things. And I like the little romance that she has with Fred. I think that's really sweet. It's actually a bit more of a believable romance than Jason and Gwen, actually, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm being completely honest. Absolutely, um, yeah. If, if I was going to fault anything about this movie, it's that kiss yeah, at the end. Yeah. But, yeah. Now, the interesting thing about Missy Pyle was her role was ex- extended out because they realized Gwen was the only female in the entire mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, and it's, it's good, actually. It's good that we see a female Thermian... Um, and it's, I, I really like that her translator is broken at the start. And so she does that kind of high pitched, ah! yeah. <laughs> which is, is one of the funniest things uh, in the movie, actually. But I, I kind of don't really want to dwell too much on her because I'm, I'm mindful of the time. But I, I just want to quickly talk about Brandon. And obviously, yeah. you know, more so Brandon than his friends. But obviously, this is Justin Long uh, in, in, I think, his first role as well. Um, it is. It is his and I first thought film. talking about Brandon and his friends kind of goes quite nicely into the whole talk about fan culture. So maybe we can kind of bookend the conversation with Brandon and, and talking about fandom, uh, I guess. Because look, like we said yeah. earlier, Brandon and his friends are the true heroes of the movie. And I think that's really, really important. They never stop believing that the whole thing was real, which... Suffice to say, is one of those things about fandom as portrayed in movies that drives me nuts. That that the fan can't tell the difference between reality and the stage, the screen, the cinema, whatever. Um, I like that because he's only supposed to be like fifteen years old or so. I do like that they're still showing how hurt he gets and how he's just willing to accept. Okay, yeah, you know what? You were right. It wasn't real. I wasn't. It wasn't real. It is real. I knew it. And 
from that moment on, it's like they definitely drained that whole. I'm 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 glad that that Brandon is a supporting character that you see him see him a few times within the first 20 minutes of the movie and then you don't see him again until like the last 20 minutes of the movie. I think lingering on him would have done the movie a, a large disservice. But I do like that, you know, you're using I mean, you go back now and you watch this 20 years later and everybody's got different schematics for the ship because they don't fit on the, the whole thing doesn't fit on their computers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, cuz uh, computers back then uh, I mean, to be honest, I'm surprised that they could video chat because I don't remember being able to video chat in 1999. But um... I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. But, you know, that's probably what they spent their lawn mowing money on. Um, but, yeah, no, it is It is really a nice thing that he's the one that comes in after Jason was so terrible to him and yelled at him and really just tore him down to kind of be the one that is the saving grace, that gets them through the chompers, that gets them all the way to have to wait for the one second uh, button. Yeah. <laughs> to be able to, to guide them back home. All of that stuff is just, it's really, it's really nice because this, it's part of, it makes Brandon and it makes Brandon's friends part of that Galaxy Quest team. Like they always wanted yeah, to be. It, it acknowledges them. It acknowledges them as part of the crew. And an integral part of why this movie works because i think we've mentioned it a few times that the fact that the fans save the day just i think a movie like this could quite easily go into kind of fan service territory like oh well we'll just put put this in for the fans and we'll just put that in for the fans you know because a lot of movies now tend to do that because they're like well we need to appease the fans so let's just put these little bits here and little bits there little easter eggs and stuff like that just to appease the fans but this kind of takes it further yeah. because it's not just a fan service movie it's a movie about the fans and about fan culture as it was but also as it still is um, and the fact that it doesn't ridicule that and the fact that, like you mentioned, fans having kind of an intimate knowledge of a TV show, it was laughable, you know, back in the 90s. It was something that you you made fun of people for doing that. Um, but this yeah. movie actually says, no, 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 that is a celebration. That is something to be admired. You know, the fact that you are so dedicated to a TV show that you know everything about it that is something brilliant. That is essentially why fan culture is is so important. And the fact that this movie does that, it could have so easily have taken the mickey out of fans. And it knew that that was the wrong thing to do. It knew that by focusing on the fans and the culture of fandom, that that would make it a better movie. I genuinely think that this this movie is genius. Uh, you know, really, truly. It really, it really is. And the beauty too, because it's P, it's a straight PG, at least in, in the US, it's it's PG. I don't know what the the UK equivalent is. Same, yeah, of it's a PG, PG, but yeah. it's a it's 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 a good all ages. I, I would say for a ten and up. I don't know if I would show my son this movie yet, but um, this does a really good job of of just. Giving everybody a place to belong, you know, it's it's about outcast, it's about outcast actors, it's about outcast fans, it's about outcast aliens, all 
kind of having their own meaning and finding that at the end of the movie. And it, it really is. It's it's really nice. And even though we will probably never get that follow-up, I don't feel completely ripped off by that because I love how it ended. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and you can just guess what happens. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes you don't need to know what happens. You can... It's up to the fans. And that's kind of nice that fan fiction and stuff is, is a real thing there are a multitude of websites of dedicated to fan fiction and i know star trek is particularly popular among the fan fiction community and this is essentially the culmination of the things like fan fiction and, and conventions and stuff like that um and it basically takes all of the best things about the fan community and, and puts it together in this really lovely little package and obviously, again, in a way, linking it to Serenity, in the episode on Serenity, I talked about the fact that Firefly and Serenity uh, were the underdogs. And that was why the fans loved it so much, because everyone loves an underdog. And it, it reminds me very much of this, that Galaxy Quest is an underdog. Uh, the fans are underdogs. Everything about this movie is aimed at underdogs and aimed at communities that are that were at the time kind of seen as lesser and of course nowadays the geek community is is prevalent it's it's not just you know comic-con was seen as like a niche uh back then nowadays everyone wants to go to comic-con it gives us something to do every week now doesn't it (laughs) it's not just comic-con you know there are all sorts of conventions happening all over the place you know and everyone wants to go everyone wants to cosplay you know, and cosplaying, it's its kind of briefly seen in Galaxy Quest, in the convention. There are some cosplayers in in the audience. And, of course, cosplaying was seen as, why, why are you dressing up as a character? That's just crazy. And now it's like yeah. everyone wants to do it. And it, it, it's, it's almost like this movie is predicting what the world is going to be like now, in, in a way. Uh, and and I, I really, really like that. Um, and, I, and I like the fact that, you know, people do love an underdog. Um, and the NSEA Protector was, was an underdog. It was a one-season TV show that got cancelled. All of the crew were underdogs. Everyone in this movie is an underdog, pretty much. Um, and yet, everyone loves it. Everyone loves an underdog. Um, and... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I... I I feel like we, we are we are kind of coming to the end of the discussion. One thing that I did want to um, I did want to quickly bre- uh, mention uh, because it's something that I like to mention every episode, and that is my obligatory Keanu reference. I think you know where I'm going with this one because it's very very obvious. It's the most obvious. Any Keanu reference that I do is probably one of the most obvious. But the director of this movie is Dean Pariseau, and Dean Pariseau is also going to be directing uh, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter in the forthcoming Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, and that was the most obvious. It was like, as soon as I knew that we were doing Galaxy Quest, it was like, ding, 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 Bill and Ted Face the Music. It, <laughs> it has to, it has to be. There, there's, I mean, there, there probably is other ways that you could link Keanu to Galaxy Quest. Actually, thinking of it, there is another link because... The I believe they reference Klaatu, the Thermians reference Klaatu, and Klaatu was the name of his character oh, yeah. in the day the Earth yeah. stood still. So there is two actual obligatory Keanu references here, but I'm going with Dean Pariseau because it's the obvious one. So okay, 
Fair uh, enough. Fair. So, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Because I, I want to talk about some financials I... and boring bits, but... Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else that really, like, sticks out to me about this movie that... Uh, first of all, you know, and I know how much you love talking about visual effects in movies, that the the visual effects in this still well, hold it's Stan up. Stan Winston. Which is kind of an... It's, uh, yeah, it's Stan Winston who did the, the creature effects. Saris is an amazing creature yeah. effect. And it, it, it just... It holds up really well. A lot of movies of this of this year specifically, the, the any CG that they used looks good. The stop motion looks good. Everything about the special effect, the visual effects, about the overall art direction of this movie looks great to this yeah. day. Which is kind of it, it, it's it's I can find movies that were released three years ago that don't look as good as this movie yeah. does now. Yeah, and it's even more impressive. Uh, I was going to talk about the budget a, a little bit, and I might as well mention it now. So so it was made on a $45 million dollar budget as well. And for effects that look this good, you you would kind of say, well, how, how did they do that on a $45 million dollar budget? Especially when you've got some big names attached to the movie as well. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's one of those, I think. Uh, they obviously used their uh, budget very well. Because I think a lot of movies, there are movies that cost two, three, four times more than that that don't look as good. That came out at the same time that don't look as good as this. So, um, so yeah, yeah. I, I think they were incredibly frugal with the budget, and uh, I agree with you. I think I think it looks, it still looks remarkably brilliant, actually. Oh, that was one thing that I, I meant to mention that uh, that I, I forgot to. So the the where it has three visual aspect ratios. So it starts out with like the the old 80s style TV format and then then it goes into uh, 185, so like uh, in the real world. So it kind of opens up. And then when Jason Nesmith uh, looks out into space, it kind of goes into the widescreen cinemascope, the 235 aspect ratio, uh, mm-hmm. which it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, brilliant filmmaking for them to think... Well, how can we show the scope of what he's seeing? I know. Let's change the aspect ratio to to show the scope, the the way that this film looks and the way that it feels. Everything about it kind of belies a movie that's twenty years old, or oh, actually, beg pardon, over twenty years old now. Um, it's <laughs> it's remarkable what they what they did on a, this budget is remarkable. Uh, uh, one thing that I did just want to quickly mention was the fact that also it was one of the first movies to have its own website as well. Uh, it was um, yes galaxyquest.com. Apparently, it's it's no longer available, um, but it basically looked like a fake TV show website, and it kept up the pretense that Galaxy Quest was a real show. Uh, it included fake episode guides. It included bits of information <laughs> about the Galaxy Quest show. There are also, uh, I have found a few unofficial fan sites that are still uh, on the internet and they do appear to still be being updated. Uh, the, uh, there's one called Galaxy Request and that was recently updated in 2019. So they are still updating it. Uh, there's also one called The Questarian. There's the Galaxy Quest Restoration Project and there's one called Galaxy Quest Fan. And they are all set up like genuine 90s Galaxy Quest sites. Uh, and they they are genuinely brilliant. Uh, they've got... It, they basically just look like old HTML websites. Um, and if anyone who was coding in the 90s remembers old HTML, uh, they, they, it's, it's all of that. It's, um, it's brilliant. Um, 
So yeah, go and check out some of those fan sites. And they also do have fake episode guys. So they've got like 90 episodes, each with like a little synopsis of each episode. And it, it someone has sat there and made it up. And it's it's just wonderful. So the fans of Galaxy Quest are just as dedicated as the fans of Galaxy Quest in the movie. And it, it it's kind of, it blows my <laughs> mind how brilliant that is. You mentioned earlier that you saw it, it was the first movie you saw in the new millennium. Because uh, I wanted to mention it, it was released obviously over in the US on Christmas Day in 1999. Uh, and it actually opened at number seven uh, in the box office. So yeah. it opened uh, the same week as any given Sunday, The Talented Mr. Ripley and Man on the Moon. Uh, and all of those beat it at the box office. So the top seven was any given Sunday, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Stuart Little, Toy Story 2, obviously, also with Tim Allen. The Green Mile, also with Sam Rockwell. And Man on the Moon. And then Galaxy Quest. So it opened reasonably wow. low. Um, and as I said, it was a $45 million budget. It ended up grossing $90 million worldwide. So it wasn't a flop by any means. It probably made back its budget. Um but yeah, it, it wasn't a massive financial success either. We briefly mentioned a TV series. So Amazon, in 2015, uh, they were talking about uh, a TV series. and It was going to be a continuation. Um, and it was put on hold after the death of Alan Rickman in 2016. And then it was resurrected again. Mm -hmm. And a script was written by a guy called Paul Shear. Um, but basically, one of the bigwigs at Paramount left. And so the project was put on hold again. Um, and it's basically just stayed in indefinite hold now i thought it would be nice to maybe end just maybe with a tribute to alan rickman i i agree with that um because he's been you know it's been it's been four years since he passed over four years now and it is very it's still hard to believe that he's gone especially because he he passed around the same time as david bowie did and to me, David Bowie is one of the greatest musicians ever. So just trying to reconcile to myself that either of them is gone is, you know, now is still a little crazy to me. Um, but this this role, I, I you, you had mentioned this being one of your favorite Alan Rickman roles. And it really, it's, I think it's the most personal of the Alan Rickman roles in terms of the fact that he was this amazing Shakespearean actor and who kind of got swept up in the the big swell of the Hollywood blockbuster. Um, and I'm pretty sure that people were accosting him and asking him to do Hans Gruber lines or, uh, you know, asking th them, asking him to stab, you know, cut out his guts with a spoon, <laughs> yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. And it's just he's he's such a remarkable presence on screen. Mm -hmm. He's always he commands that. Uh, the best description I heard about him, this was right after he passed, was that Alan Rickman had this amazing talent to draw out a single syllable word. Any word that he had, and I always point to the when he was in. Um, which one was it with Umbridge? Uh, Order of the Phoenix. When Dolores Umbridge is is questioning him about 
having constantly applied to be the um, instructor against, you know, defense against the dark arts. And then she's like, you know, you, you've applied for this. Yes. And you never got the position, did you? Obviously. And it was just like this, his delivery is just so iconic and so very much of every everything he does even even smaller films like love actually which god that movie makes me cry every time i watch it the scene with him and and rowan atkinson in the shop mm. i'm assuming you've seen yeah, love actually the, right yeah. or is no, that no, just no. like a it's a, only a movie that americans watch and brits all <laughs> no, laugh point i tell you i tell you what, it, tell you what, what it is i i have a very contentious relationship with love actually um i i i okay. don't I know that everyone is like it's the, one of the greatest romantic comedies of our time, and I I do not agree uh, with. I don't agree with that either. I, I don't agree with I that either. I am not either, a fan of Sam. him actually, but I, I love Alan Rickman, oh. and I, I think the scenes with him and Emma Thompson destroy me. That that scene with Emma Thompson with the CD destroys me. Like I sob. Yes. I I can't I can't cope with. Emma Thompson, I think, yeah, that that's I I can't even think of that scene because it, it upsets me so much because I'm like Alan, why would you do that to Emma? Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I I I have seen Love Actually, and I I am aware of the scene that you're thinking of. Yeah, but it's just he is. It's there are very few actors whose voice is essentially is where they announce their presence in a movie, and I think that. I mean, as, as good of an actor as he is, it's 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 all in the delivery. That's what every actor's like. It's all in the delivery, and his delivery in this movie, in Die Hard, in Robin Hood, um, he's just so he's always the best thing in every movie yeah. he's in. Oh, I I completely completely one hundred percent agree. I I basically listed a couple of uh, well, a few characters that. I personally just absolutely adore that that he he basically embodies, and it, he's one of those actors that it would very be very easy for him to be typecast, um, especially you know he was Hans Gruber, so it's very easy for him to be the villain uh, mm. because he's so good at it. And then he was the sheriff of Nottingham, and he was so iconic. You know, he stole a movie from Kevin Costner. You know, he stole a Robin Hood movie from Robin Hood, and there's not. We watched that movie a couple days ago. It, it wasn't hard to steal <laughs> no, that movie from no, Kevin it's Costner. True. I mean, Let's I, be honest. I love Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I, I, I really do. It was a movie that I grew up with. Um, but I was always fascinated with the Sheriff of Nottingham. The Sheriff of Nottingham is not a nice character by any stretch. He is essentially, you know, he's rapey and he's cruel. Uh, but the way that Alan Rickman delivers those lines it makes it less uncomfortable when you kind of look at a character like the Sheriff of Nottingham. He makes it more palatable in a way. Uh, and with Hans Gruber, you know, he, he made a terrorist quite sexy. And it's like, I watched Die Hard and I'm like, I should yeah. not be attracted to the terrorist. This is wrong. <laughs> um, but it, again, it's like, it's iconic. Um, I, I, I do want to cover Die Hard at, at some point just for Alan Rickman. Um, and this is the first time that I've I've done an Alan Rickman movie, but I wanted it to be Galaxy Quest. But obviously, because you were coming on, and we, and we said we would talk about Galaxy Quest, but I wanted this to be the first because 
I genuinely think that this is his best movie. And when we talk about Alan Rickman, he's done a lot. You know, like I say, he was Hans Gruber. He was the Sheriff of Nottingham. He was Severus Snape in the entire Harry <laughs> Potter franchise. Um, and that is obviously what most people know him as Severus Snape. Uh, but obviously we know him as... Oh, I'm going to mention another classic 1999 movie now. We know him as Metatron in Dogma. That's... Yes. And Metatron, yes. again, is one of the best characters in Dogma. Like, he steals Dogma from everyone, you know. He steals Dogma from uh, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Linda Fiorentino, uh, Salma Hayek, <laughs> uh, oh, Chris Rock. You know, all of these other actors. And it's like, you only care about Alan Rickman as Metatron. He stole... The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as Marvin the Paranoid Android. And he just did the voice. He wasn't even there. He was just the voice. Um, and I, I also have to kind of mention as well, um, it's it's probably a bit out there. And I, I don't know how many listeners have, have seen Sense and Sensibility, but Sense and Sensibility oh, yeah. is one of my favourite period movies adaptations of a Jane Austen novel. Um, and it was written by Emma Thompson. It was directed by Ang Lee. Um, and he is the perfect Colonel Brandon. Uh, I adore Sense and Sensibility. That is also coming to the podcast as well at some point. But again, all of these things, uh, your dogma is on my list. Hitchhiker's Guide is on my list. Shapers, yeah. But I I wanted Galaxy Quest first because I, I... I genuinely feel like this is the pièce de résistance of a uh, a man who has such a, a varied uh, film role history. Uh, like you say, a man with the voice that everyone recognises. I wanted mm. it to be Galaxy Quest. And I'm so happy that it is Galaxy Quest and that we've been able to talk about Galaxy Quest because there are only a handful of actors that I will turn around and say that I genuinely still miss. Uh, one of them is Heath Ledger, and I talked about him on A Knight's Tale. Um, and again, I'm going to be talking about Heath Ledger at some point in the near future, uh, mainly because he died far too young. Um, and uh, I miss him so much. Um, and Robin Williams as well. Uh, immeasurable amount of, of missing from, from me and Alan Rickman. And those three, I still feel sad that people are you know kids are growing up and yeah they can see historical documents of robin williams and <laughs> heath ledger and alan rickman but they will never be able to experience what we experienced going to the cinema to see the latest heath ledger movie or to see robin williams um and it, it's good that they have the historical documents but I I wish so much that Alan Rickman was still here. I, I can't tell you how much I wish that. Yeah. Because I, I, I genuinely... Yeah. Cinema misses Alan Rickman. Um, he, uh, he, he, is, he is wonderful. Um, and I'm, but I'm, I feel quite sad, but I'm going to carry on. I, I'm so happy, though, <laughs> that we've been able to talk about Galaxy Quest. Yeah. To honour not just Alan Rickman, but everyone. Um, associated with this movie because it is genuinely perfect in every way. It's, it really is. This is the Mary Poppins of movies. It's practically perfect <laughs> in every way. Absolutely. 
I think we we should end it there because I I feel like that there's not really much else that we can we can say. I'm not going to do social media thoughts because this episode is going to run quite late. Um, but um, right. what I want to do now, if it's okay with you, Andy, and I'm sure it will be, um, yeah. I would like to give you the opportunity to plug your wonderful podcast and obviously tell people where they can find you and where they can find Geek Salad and where where can they listen to you? Okay. Well, yes, as Em mentioned, we are Geek Salad you can get, uh, find us wherever you get your podcasts, so Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. Our audio stream also shows up on our YouTube channel, which is Geek Salad Podcast, where you can also check out movie reviews that we do. Uh, my partner Mike and I try uh, attempt to do weekly reviews of older movies. Uh, not so much a review, but more like a reminiscence of um, so we try to discuss that as well. We are active on uh, Twitter. Mostly we're active on Twitter at Geek Salad Radio, but we're also on Facebook at Geek Salad Podcast if you want to give us a follow on both of those. And yeah, I, I highly, I, I really like you to invite you to check out our episodes. And if you're a fan of Verbal Diorama, then definitely check out episode uh, 197 where we discuss the movies of 1990. Uh, we had to bring M in for that, and it was a—it's an epic two-parter. So it's twice the M, <laughs> twice the verbal diorama on one episode of Geek Salad. Uh, it is a great place to start, but we have uh, episodes discussing so many other topics. We talk about video games, we talk music, we talk television, we talk just food. We talk a lot of stuff. Literally, literally a salad do- of geekness <laughs> everything it is a buffet, a buffet. of everything yeah. exactly yeah. yes so yes please listen to us and if you love us and you want to show some support uh check out our t public page where you can get t-shirts and mugs and all that fun stuff which is just t public and then the keyword is geek salad podcast nice obviously uh, a massive thank you to andy for coming on again to talk about another yeah. movie of 1999. Uh, maybe you'll come on for Dogma next. Who knows? Let's just go through all the 1999. I, you know what? I would love nothing more than to come on for Dogma. It is a date, <laughs> Do you know what? When when uh, when I was prepping this episode, uh, I was like, I'm not going to invite Andy on for another one uh, at the end because, uh, you know, I don't want him to feel like he has to, you know. I don't want to feel like, you know, because he might not want to. And what have I just done? I've just been like, yeah, come on for Dogma. It's fine. <laughs> but you, you yeah. are more than welcome. <laughs> and I'm all like, yeah, that's cool. I can do that. <laughs> you are, Maybe in another nine months, you can come on for your third appearance. Uh, and yeah, oh. we, we can talk about, uh, about it, but I'm more than happy to talk with you about Dogma. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on, um, talking about Galaxy West. It's been a genuine delight. Uh, you are... It's always You a are pleasure. a wonderful human being. And you know that I think that you're a wonderful human being because we, we speak a lot kind of off, off podcast land. You know, we're, we're always kind of chatting and messaging each other and stuff like that. And, and you are genuinely a wonderful human being. You have always been so supportive of me and, and of Verbal Diorama as well. So um, I, I can think of nothing that I would like more than for you to come back again. Um, because <laughs> I, I feel like you've always 
you've always got something interesting to say. You, you, you're so knowledgeable about that kind of speak. You're so knowledgeable uh, about pretty much everything. But that's kind of the point of Geek Salad, I guess, is that you you do kind of talk about everything. So you 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 know a lot about everything. Um, I'm that loudmouth that's going to get this entire crew killed. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, uh, as I said, massive thank you to Andy for coming on. I hope everyone has enjoyed. It's a bit of a different episode because it always is with a guest on, but a lot more fun, a lot more banter, um, you know, a lot more laughs than just me talking on my own. And it's a revelation for me to actually have someone else to talk to. So I'm very, very grateful uh, for that. Thank you uh, for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Galaxy Quest uh, and pretty much anything to do with galaxy quest you are more than welcome to talk to me about uh the next episode what can i say except you're welcome uh, <laughs> uh that's it no um the next episode is is going to be on what i think is probably disney's best animated movie in the last 20 years uh just hands down so 2016 was a great year for disney because uh, zootopia or as we know it's zootropolis uh, was also released the same year and I love that movie too but I chose this one instead uh, the next episode so that's episode 55 is going to be on Moana uh, and you you <laughs> and Andy's excited um, and I love Moana I love Moana um, I'm so excited to be talking about Moana everyone knows how much I love animation uh, I do have an animation season coming at the start of next year but I specifically wanted moana before then so i am really excited to be talking about moana and i hope you will join me for that what i normally done in the past is i would go through lists i'd be like if you like this episode i've also done episodes on blah 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 but as i now have over 50 episodes i'm no longer listing them all uh and that is for a couple of reasons really it's mainly to do with time but it's also to do with the fact that it really really hurts my throat to have to list through over 50 episodes so instead each episode i'm going to try to recommend other similarly themed episodes that if you do like this one you might also like to listen to this little selection of episodes that i've put together so if you liked this episode on serenity you might also like episodes with similar sci-fi themes so the Joss Whedon co-written Titan AE which was the very first episode of this podcast also Edge of Tomorrow, Passengers, Treasure Planet, Serenity and Rogue One as well I think because they're all very similar sci-fi themes um, obviously give me feedback on my recommendations do you think I got it right do you think I missed anything Um, let me know on social media if you do like this episode or any other episode that I've put out, um, if you would be so kind as to take a moment to rate and review on something like Apple Podcasts, uh, ideally five stars would be lovely. Um, that would just be really, really nice. I would really appreciate it. It's the best way to show me or any podcaster that you enjoy listening. Um, and it's completely free and it literally takes two minutes. Uh, or uh, another thing that you could do, tell your friends if you do enjoy my episodes then make sure you tell someone and maybe they could listen too that would be awesome if you do want to get in touch with me on social media i'm on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd at verbal diorama um and although you're under no obligation to do so if you if you wish you can sign up to support the show on patreon it's patreon.com slash verbal diorama 
tier start at two dollars a month and you get some lovely little perks you get the upcoming schedule every month and you also get a shout out on the next episode and you get episodes slightly early too so a big thank you to the patrons of this podcast to simon e Sade, hardy l claudia simon b laurel derek jason Kristen, kat andy mike and griff a big massive thank you to all the patrons of verbal diorama if you want to get in touch on email, you can do so verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also get in touch with me on my website, verbaldiorama.com. Uh, you can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk. Uh, you can check out the print magazine, uh, of which the new issue will be available soon-ish. Uh, I've just submitted my ninth column for that. Um, and also the website articles, a couple of which are written by me as well. Um... Obviously, if you can support film stories, that would just be wonderful. Um, please buy a magazine if you can. Uh, or just, you know, click on a link or two on the website. Every little helps. So <laughs> I thought maybe we could do a synchronised Never Give Up, Never Surrender. That sounds great. Well, let, let's just let's just give it a try, okay? I'll count down, okay? okay. Three, two, one. Never, never give, give up. up. Never, never surrender. surrender.